If you've been around at Kenilworth Union this Lent and Easter, you know we're preaching this sermon series called Lent in Plain Sight, in which we're looking at common objects from the Passion Story. Dust, bread, coins, shoes, thorns, cross, oil, others today, stones. The Easter lesson comes from the Gospel according to St. Matthew. After the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord, descending from heaven, came and rolled back the stone and sat upon it. His appearance was like lightning, and his raiment was white as snow. For fear of him, the guards shook and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Don't be afraid. I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he's been raised. Come, see the place where the Lord lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, Jesus has been raised from the dead, and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee, and there you'll see him. This is my message for you. And so the women left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy, and ran to tell Jesus' disciples. And suddenly Jesus himself met them and said, Greetings. And they t came to him and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. And Jesus said to them, Don't be afraid. Go and tell my brothers and sisters to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you, choristers. You set me perfectly up for this sermon on stones. Speaking of stones, why do they call the Rolling Stones the Rolling Stones? You may know that they were originally known as the Blues Boys, not to be confused with the Blues Brothers, but that was too common and daily a term for a rising rock band. And so when they got their great break, a magazine called guitarist Brian Jones and asked him what the group wanted to be called, and he had no idea. He was clueless. But there was a Muddy Waters album on the table before him, and one of the tracks was Rolling Stone. Voila, the second most famous rock band of all time gets a name. So, the Rolling Stones are not named for the stone that blocked the entrance to Jesus' tomb, but they could have been. Because three of the four Gospels tell us that when those women visited Jesus' tomb at dawn of that first Easter, they found the stone rolled away. Which means, of course, that it must be spherical or circular. It might have looked like this, a giant poker chip on its side, or a silver dollar, and it was just gone. So, a stone is any dense, heavy, impervious aggregate of minerals that is blocking our way to new life and resurrection. The stone was the women's anxiety as they approached that grave on the first Easter. What are we going to do about the stone, they said to themselves on the way there. And then when they get there, of course, problem solved. Some miracle, magic, mystery, marvel, or muscle has elbowed it aside. And all that greets them is a yawning chasm and an empty grave. So that's Easter in Matthew. A discarded barricade, an empty opening, a splendid Vanny envoy from the great blue beyond who comes crashing to earth like an asteroid, and a phantasmic car gardener or carpenter in the shadows of that garden who emerges and says, 
Greetings. Hail. Hello. Hi. Hey, dudes. That's what the Greek ought to be translated. That's Easter in Matthew. It's not much, but at least we have that. No, so far as I know, there's been only one genuine resurrection from the dead in the history of the world, which doesn't mean that we are free from that curse, does it? Jesus is raised, but we still have to wait till the last day for glad reunion with those we loved and lost. Theologians talk about Easter as the already and the not yet. That is to say, Jesus is already raised, but the gift of eternal life for all is not yet. We wait till the last day for glad reunion. In the meantime, while we wait, we work and watch for smaller, more daily resurrections as we shuffle about this mortal coil in search of new life. Sometimes we encounter a large, dense, impervious aggregate of minerals blocking our way to a new beginning and a second chance and hope and life. Other times, it's just gone. It's been rolled away. And all we see is this cavernous emptiness for us to explore. So maybe you had your heart so set on one university, you forgot to think of anything else. You had no plan B. You wanted this school, and that was it, but the cruel gods of the admissions department swatted you away like a fly, and there, then there you are. What do you do? Well, you start over. You go back to the drawing board. You find a new institution, new knowledge, new life, and that, it turns out, is where you belong. Or you're so much in love that you invest five years of your life into a relationship you're sure will end in marriage, kids, and a three-bedroom colonial in Will Met with a fenced-in backyard for the Basset Hound, but he absconds with someone else, so there you are. You have to start over, maybe alone, or maybe some new romance will sweep you off your feet into some newer and brighter future, which is where you belonged in the first place. Who knows what stealthy, sneaky providence is afoot crowbarring adamantine obstacles out of your way. Robert Blackson rolls the stone away for young people in Philadelphia. Robert Blackson works for Temple University, and somewhere along the line he discovered that the Philadelphia school system has 1,000 broken musical instruments stored away in its orchestra rooms. There's a, a violin without strings, and there's a flute with stuck keys, and there's a French horn with a stuck valve, and there's a snare drum with a gash in the head. All it does is rattle. And the Philadelphia school system has no money to fi fix these 1,000 broken instruments, which means, of course, that 1,000 Philadelphia poor kids will never get the chance to make beautiful music. This offends Robert Blackson. So he wants to repair these 1,000 broken instruments, and so he raises money. You know how he raises money? He gathers a collection of these Philadelphia school students and a bunch of professional musicians from the Philadelphia Orchestra, for instance, and he puts one of these broken instruments in their hands, and then he finds this eccentric musician named David Lang who writes odd music, and David Lang writes a piece for this group called Symphony for a Broken Orchestra. Look it up on YouTube, it'll make you weep. Because that's what we are together, right? We're all broken in some way. 
Somewhere along the line, the strings have come off or the clarinet keys got ripped off. We're broken, not dead. Doesn't mean we don't get a second chance. Somebody will write a symphony for broken instruments for us and we'll have the chance to make splendid sound filled with meaning, magic, mystery, and magnificence. A theologian's depleted imagination is one obstacle to faithful ministry. That's what a sabbatical is supposed to be about in church or in academia or maybe in some artistic professions where the practitioner hopes every day or every week to lower her bucket into the well of her diminishing imagination and hoping to bring something up. That's what a sabbatical is for, for the replenishment of the sacred imagination. Uh, look, I know I don't work any harder than any of you. I don't work harder than Laura Linger at William Blair or Meg Revord at Kirkland Ellis or somebody who works at New Trier High School. And I know a bunch of people are thinking, they don't say this out loud, but they're thinking, wait, what? He gets an extra eight weeks of paid vacation? I work harder than he does. How come I don't get a sabbatical? Good point. Talk to your boss. On the other hand, Katie and Christine and I, you know, uh, this is my 37th Easter. Try coming, come up, coming up with something new to say about the same subject 37 times. <laughs> Somebody preaches 40 times a year, she writes 60,000 words in a year. It's a little fewer than Tom Sawyer and a little more than The Great Gatsby, about a book a year. So thank you for rolling away the stone of the depleted imagination for Kathy and Doogie and me. We're going to start driving to the West Coast tomorrow, stopping at a bunch of national parks on our way. I guess Yosemite is as far as we'll get. And the hope, of course, is that the stunning vista of our beloved homeland will restore the sacred imagination. We'll come home for a couple days, and then we'll, we're off to South Africa, you know, when we started thinking about the Africa part of this trip, the thought was that we would explore what's now Malawi, where my father spent the first year of his, first 11 years of his life as the child of Baptist missionaries. But that turned out to be too remote, and so we settled for Cape Town and Robben Island and Victoria Falls. And so we'll be gone until June. Thank you for the great gift and for removing the stone of a depleted imagination. Sermons are funny things, aren't they? I preach them and you listen, I hope. And then you forget about them. I forget about them. By Wednesday of the following week, I've already forgot what I preached about the prior Sunday. Sermons have the shelf life of a banana. And so before I leave you for an extended time, I wanted to update you on three of the sermons I preached during Lent to give them just a little longer shelf life just to make sure they're not dead yet. Okay, in one of the sermons, I invited you to donate in the name of Kenilworth Union Church to UNICEF for relief in Ukraine. It was about a month ago. You gave to the church in the name of Kenilworth Union and Jesus Christ 
$21,000 for relief to UNICEF. That's a tiny resurrection, but it's a resurrection while we wait for the real one. Secondly, in one of my uh, Lenten sermons, I um, use 30 half dollars to mimic Judas Iscariot's 30 pieces of silver. And in the course of the sermon, these 30 half dollars ended up hither and yon across the sanctuary, including one that rolled clear back to the narthex. And I just want you to know that of those 30 original half dollars, I got 29 back. I'm still waiting for that last one to show up. And then finally, in a sermon four weeks ago, I told you about Gerda Weissman Klein, the Polish-Jewish girl who turned 16 in 1939. In 1942, when the Nazis chased the Jews out of her Polish hometown, her father made her wear her ski boots, even though it was a hot day in June. And Gerda says later that the reason she survived six years of labor camps and Nazi cruelty was because of those ski boots. And she ends up alive, one of 150 out of 3,000 women marched across the wintry landscape of Europe, 150 of 3,000 women who ends up at a Czech bicycle factory in May of 1945 when the Nazis are surrendering and she meets an American GI. Gerda is 21 years old. She weighs 68 pounds. Her hair is snow white. She's almost dead. But Lieutenant Klein opens the door to the factory for her. And she will later say that when that moment happened, she realized that dignity and humanity returned to the earth. He cast the stone aside for her. And so not only would he nurse her to health, he then fell in love with her and he married her and they stayed married for 56 years until Kurt died in 2002, and I told you four weeks ago that Gerda was 97 years old, living in Phoenix, and still with us. Well, it turns out that Gerda died April 3 at the age of 97 in Phoenix. She was a great Pole, she was a great Jew, and she was a great American, and she's gone Along the way, she once said, I spent six incredible years in a place where winning meant earning an extra crust of bread to survive another day. And I just want you to know, you who own the gift of freedom, you who have a place to go, tonight when you go to spend a boring evening at home, you will become winners. Rest in peace, Gerda. Can you see it in the murky shadows of a Palestinian cemetery? A gigantic slab of stone cast carelessly aside like a poker chip. The yawning chasm of an empty tomb. The fractured seals. Christ, the crucified king, shattering death's doors. Can you see it? Can you hear it? The laughter of things beyond the tears of things, the meeting of darkness and light, and the final triumph of light, the joy beyond the walls of this world, more poignant than grief. Christ is risen in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen.